Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Today's episode is brought to you by Adventure Dice. Adventure Dice is an online dice shop based here in Vancouver, selling a variety of dice and other gaming accessories. Personally, I'm a big fan of their rolling trays and the grounded pixie dice set. Adventure Dice ships for free anywhere in Canada, and if you use the code DMV at checkout, you can get a 10% discount on your purchase. That's DMV for a nice discount on your new tabletop gear. Find the shop at adventuredice.ca and roll for adventure! Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're talking about duet games. Today we're joined by Kevin Wilson. How's it going today, Kevin? Hi, uh, going pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Uh, so uh, first off, where might folks know you from? Um, they might know me from uh, a podcast called The Curious Accounts of Crownsgrave, where I GM, write it, and run it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I really enjoy the show, and listening to it was how we kind of met and set this up. So uh, yeah, thank you. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you for listening. <laughs> well, and thank you for listening to our show and agreeing to come on. Oh, it's it's so great. Like uh, I've definitely loved uh, listening to the variety of people that you have on. You've had my friend Maat on, who I might talk about later, but it's um, that's how I first learned of you all. But the variety of of people you have on, oh, I love it. All right, so uh, let's get into it. Starting with, what are duets? Um, well, duets, um, because they're they're aren't really talked about a ton in the role playing game sphere. A lot of people call them just like two player uh, role playing games. Uh, duet, typically, like the word duo means two people, and some people use them when they talk about duet board games, one on one board games. But here, I'm mostly going to be talking about tabletop and they can be a single dm and a player playing a game together um or they can be two players and there's no gm and the system sort of does all the gming for them and any less than that is like one person that's solo rpgs which are also fun all right so what what are duet games good at why why would you choose to run one or is it a a choice that like a gm makes or is it Two people just being like, we want to play a game together, but we don't want to set up Dungeons and Dragons. Those are both incredibly valid reasons to do it, though. Like the um, typically, I think uh, a lot of times when I read about it, when I hear about it, it's um, two people who are living together and one of them really likes RPGs. They want to play D&D, but their group takes forever to get together or it's um, someone who's been interested you know, in your house or or that you have a lot of contact with and you just want to start with them and focus on them rather than throwing them in the deep end with uh, a whole group of people. And I think duets are uniquely positioned in this way of being really easy, uh, easy in quotes, but natural for uh, new players to get into. Um, because I think that there's a lot of unsaid things and you've both covered this in your show of all these sort of micro rules or like invisible rules that you sort of learn over time. And, you know, do I do a voice? Can I talk in first person or third person? Like all these sort of questions. And if you're just doing it one-on-one, that pressure goes down a lot. Um, 
but I think a lot of people, like I think both of you have probably sort of already played a duet game without thinking of it. If you've if you've ever gone to a movie and you walk out and it's kind of not as good as you want it to be, and you come up with like a better version of the movie with you and another person, like your friend, you've kind of done like a part of a duet game. Like, and the only thing that you're missing is like dicing some rules in order to keep that going and then finish the story rather than you get bored or you get home. And you're like, I'm going to bed. <laughs> um, and this, I, I think a lot of fiction is built like a duet where, um, like how many, I know there's a game about this. I, I know I'm setting myself up, but how many stories do you have? Like how many mystery stories do you have where five genius detectives like appear at the same crime scene? Um, and I know there's a game, uh, there's that Sherlock game where one of them is a Dracula. Um, uh, and it, but like, bear with me. Um, and it's to illustrate that a lot of stories have a main character and there is a difference between a main character story and like an ensemble story. And for, um, for this, I think that duets are really uniquely positioned because a lot of people have that in their mind already. And I think that like, have either of you had a problem where you've had a game and someone comes in and they have a character concept in their head that really only works for like a single story or like them that's focused on them, like, like a Batman or a Wolverine. All the time, honestly, it happens a lot. And I feel like uh, player characters often kind of get adjusted on the fly as you play games anyway. So it kind of works itself out. But I've definitely been in games where someone's like, yes, I'm playing the character who is the big hero. And and I am the hero and only me. And you're like, so what about these four other folks? <laughs> and it's it's sometimes it's like really funny and sometimes it's really sad where I, I've been in games where someone wants to be the Batman and they're like, I'm Batman, but they're level one and they just like get their crap kicked out of them constantly and you can see like their happiness fall like they're just like oh i'm the worst batman um i i just really quick for some reason that put in my head somebody playing kronk from the emperor's new groove yeah absolutely i want i want to play kronk now because he's like the super confident but not really that great kind of character yeah like in kronk's head he thinks he's the main character and that's what makes him so fun is that he is obviously not the main character. Um, and different tables have different etiquette of dealing with this problem where some of them just keep hitting them with the stick and they're like, learn, like with a newspaper on the nose. Um, and sometimes people come into the game and they're doing this automatically. They're not like trying to ruin the group's fun. Um, and you can, you know, hit that out of them. You can take them aside and say like, yo, this is an ensemble game. Um, or you could play a solo game with them to show them the difference of what we're talking about, where um, before this, I did some research. I talked to some people from some other podcasts and shows and, and websites, and, and all of them do duets in different ways. And I asked them these sorts of questions of like, what, are, what is it good for? And Jeff Stormer from Party of One talked about, you use the example of the difference between the Avengers and Captain America Winter Soldier. And in the Avengers, it's a bunch of people coming together to deal with a, with a problem, with an obstacle. And in Captain America Winter Soldier, it's just a focus on that character. So you can show really small moments or, you know, do whatever you and your player like to do. And I think that 
this kind of concept comes really naturally to a lot of people. So it's not as hard to get into as you might think. Um, the it, And it's that aspect of shining a light on a particular character that even if you have a group game, I have seen a lot of DMs talk about, oh, I pulled this character aside, so we're going to talk about them. Um, or just change the pace. You know, if something's really fast paced and you just want to chill out with, with someone, you could have a slower pace. Like here's, let's build you a house or let's talk about what you do on your off time. Um, and that change of pace can be really rewarding for people. So something that I'm curious about really quick is it's, it's obviously possible to run these kind of games in D and D, but are there any duet focused games that are kind of built from the ground up to be this kind of one-on-one either GM and player or a GM less player and player experience? Oh, there's a lot. There's definitely more now. Um, when I first started crown's grave, just like a year ago, like a year and a half ago, um, I mean, part of this was me learning what the Simpsons were, but I would say the the most common answer you'll get if you wander into a crowd of people who know tabletop and go like, hey, where's the duet games? You will get, I mean, first of all, you get a bunch of people telling you just to use D&D, but second, you will get, I think Scarlet Heroes is the one I hear a lot about. I have not played it yet, but it is definitely a game built for um one-on-one interaction that's something that jeff stormer from party of one podcast suggested and recently iron sworn is built from the ground up to be a solo rpg meaning you sit there and then you roll dice to see what happens and that dictates the world um but it's also built to be gmless so you could play it with one person and and sort of go through it that way or you could be the dm or gm and play with one person and that system is built to help support you while you do stuff. Um, and then there's also, uh, if, you, if you're if you not looking for fantasy, there's Gumshoe one-on-one. Um, Night Black's Agent is, is one that a lot of people really like that is built around one GM and one player. Okay. Um, and additionally, and me, me and you, Kevin, have talked about this, Murderous Ghosts is... It can be one like a GM and multiple players, but it's kind of almost feels like it's more built for one person versus the DM. Oh, yeah. In that system, uh, I've not played it yet, but um, hearing about you talk about it and looking through the rules, it's very well built for you chasing your player around and scaring the crap out of them. Yes. Uh, it sounds so fun. I want to try it real bad. <laughs> so um, I guess... One of the first follow-up questions, well, one of the best follow-up questions is, what kind of weaknesses do duet games have? Because I think, like, we've gone over a bunch of the pros of being able to do these kind of one-on-one, smaller, more focused stories about just a a single character. Whether you're doing it as an offshoot from a regular game or just as your regular game. But what kind of what kind of weaknesses are there? What are the the downsides to running these kind of duet games? Um, from my experience, having run a lot of them, I think the first one, I mean, the biggest one for me that I would warn someone about is that they are intense, um, in the sense that they are not, I mean, some games, if you're running murderous ghosts, for example, they can get very scary. Um, but I mean it mostly in the sense that they are exhausting, um, for some people, they just don't like doing one-on-one conversations like. For some people, 
I mean, how often in your day do you sit down with one person and talk to them for three to six hours? Um, and the whole time you're going to be on like in a in a group game like D&D, DM says, roll initiative and you can go, cool, here's my score. I'm going to get pretzels. And in a one on one game, Sean, if you did that with me and you're like, cool, roll initiative. I'm like, the goblin hit you. What do you do now? And you're like, oh, oh, God, what? What do, I'm I'm sorry. I wanted to go to the bathroom. You're like, okay, you can go to the bathroom. But when you come back, the goblin's still there. Um, and that can be really exhausting for people. Um, and I kind of liken it to when, when a GM asks me this question, a DM. I liken it to like both of you. How, is there anything more scary to you than when a player goes, what is their name? <laughs> I mean... I, I talked about this on the uh, the stream that we did last weekend, but I've actually uh, got a binder that I did of prep for my homebrew campaign, and it's got a bunch of tabs in it, and one of the tabs is literally, here is a spreadsheet printed out of, uh, of orc names, of gnome names, of dwarf names, and last names, and first names, so that if I have to generate an NPC on the fly, I can just go in and be like, that's their name. Cool. Cross that one off so I don't use it again soon. And okay, that's their name. That's genius. And my follow-up question for you then is, do you have to pretend that you're not looking at it for your players? Do they do oh, they try no. to get you? No, they 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 the the campaign is, is since ended, but when I it didn't have to happen often, but when it did happen, it was just like, give me a second, I need to figure out what their name is. That's perfect. Like I was very I was very upfront about the fact that they had thrown me for a tiny loop and i needed the moment yeah and there's there's some players that like to push the boundaries of what they're in and um some will be like ah you don't have a name for this um but that feeling like i have it i can usually come up with like one name and then pass that like even if i have a chart um uh if they ask a follow-up of like cool there's name what about their name and then my brain breaks um it's it's like that that can happen at the at a duet game but it's like both of you do that um where they're like what is their name and you're like i don't know what are you gonna do and they're like oh god i don't i didn't think and that sort of like fast-paced nature of it can be a lot for people um on the gm end you are gonna machine gun through content um if you're running a module, I have heard of people running through Curse of Strahd one-on-one like way faster than is normal for like a group. Um, and it will really, if you have problems with improv, like I do, um, it will really stretch those muscles in a way that is kind of like throwing you into the deep end. Um, and that could be a lot. Uh, and you can just end up in weird places because you're building the plane in the air. Um, and like... That feeling that bo- like both of you have talked in your in these episodes about um, sort of having to like give the players a, a pause button and look through it. Like, Sean, you just said that with the names. Um, but usually you have moments when you can like sit back. Like what if I can ask you a question, both of you, out of the whole process of playing a game, is there a part where you feel the most relaxed where you oh, can like yeah. sit back? Yeah, when my players are having conversations with each other in character. Sometimes in in the game I run, uh, sometimes for several minutes, sometimes for a half hour. I for me, it would actually be. I think the for, the best example for me was when I uh, the players were exploring a 
cave slash tomb system underneath a part of the city and i started describing a mosaic and i started asking questions about the mosaic about like what does my character know about the history depicted here and we had this really cool scene but i was able to just get into this flow state because it was one of the moments where me having done too much prep allowed me to just not have to think about like oh what is the history of this area why why is there this here why is that detail in the mosaic i was able to just go and that was real nice that's wonderful like a lot of my prep process is to over prep so that i don't to reduce the amount of decisions i have to make because i have adhd and i have some executive dysfunction and so when i show people you know when i prep i spend a lot of time but I'm I'm comfortable throwing it all away based on what's happening, and I've been in that flow state that you talked about, Sean. Of uh, some you you can just intuitively feel how the scene is going to move or the details of the world. And Sean, you sound like you have a really good grasp on world building. Of you know your place sounds really fleshed out, and I imagine you can do that more often than not, at least more than I could probably. Yeah, I would. I would say that i think that's the one thing that me and jesse have talked about is that if we were going to co-dm a game that i would probably end up doing the world building because it's it is something that i enjoy doing that's awesome that's awesome and like it's it's that sort of thing i mean part of um we're talking about weaknesses but a strength is um you can lean harder into the thing that you like with the person you're playing with if you have the ability to be upfront with them um but because you're so fast-paced you will also have to you're going to experience your weaknesses a lot. Um, uh, so Jesse, what do you, what would you say is one of your weaknesses? Uh, I mean, the name, the name thing is an obvious one. Um, just like if my players do something that is so out of the blue that like, I do not expect it. It really throws me for a loop. And on top of that kind of linked to what you guys were just talking about. I don't do a lot of prep. Yeah. Because I, I usually don't need to, um but like so if uh if something goes completely off the rails sometimes i have to stop games and just be like i don't i don't have this this ready guys yeah yeah and i think that if you have a kind of table or like if you yourself have a hard time setting up that kind of rapport with the person you're playing with it can that can be really intimidating or just incredibly hard of having the kind of atmosphere that's relaxed enough that you don't feel like you have spotlights on you every second that are like right next to your face or the ability for you to say like, oops, I don't, I don't have it. And um, Zach from uh, heart points podcast, which is a husband and wife playing games together. Um, there have been times he's talked about where he is, they've sat down to play and he just doesn't have it. Like he knows he doesn't have it right away. And he's had to say like, can we come back to this in an hour? Or they've had to put off games for it um, because either one of them weren't in the right space for this sort of experience. Um, to specifically talk about how to set up communication with your with the person you're playing with, uh, I have some basic things that I use. Like I definitely advise Session Zero, which is coincidentally the first name, the name of your first episode of your podcast. Um, and like in that episode, did they talk, did you talk about like Monty Cook's consent guide and stuff like that? Or like how you set up a, a session one, session zero? So I think when we recorded that, I don't know if Monty Cook's consent guide was even out. Yeah, I no, think it, that was recorded. I think a good, at least a year before that came out. 
Got you. And that I I tell people to use that because if they have no concept of how to do a session zero, if they're completely lost, because it it's just a big questionnaire. And um you can it allows you to ask your players like all kinds of questions about what they want in the game and what they don't want in the game. I use lines and veils, which is basically the reduced version of a consent thing. And um but I keep asking them more questions on top of that of what don't you want and what what do you just want to um say exists but don't talk about. Like a big one for me in in solo games is death and consequences. Uh because in a group game, if someone dies, if uh your fellow adventurer dies, that can fuel your storyline, that can fuel their storyline if they play like I think in your death episode, you talked about doing a funeral and then having someone appear at the funeral, right? Yeah. Yep. And that can be good motivation for the party in all sorts of things. But in a solo game, if they die, the story can just stop. And so having a conversation early about that, I think is really important. And like in Crownsgrave, I have an episode called, uh, I have a story called Piecemeal where I have a, a player named Rhiannon. And they go through, they go into this terrible place inside Crown's Grave. And death was not a possibility. I did not tell the player this because they didn't want to know. But death was not a possibility until the reveal point of the story. And then from that point on, death was interesting to me if it was a possibility to happen. Um, and But you can be more communicative. Uh, you can be more clear with your player of, do you want to be able to die? Um, and you can talk about like, what is the challenge in this? I think when you sit down for a game like D&D, it's assumed that all of you are doing the challenge of going into a dungeon or fighting some monsters or things. Um, so you can make that assumption. And if someone picks a rogue, you assume they want to be sneaky. Um, but in a group environment, especially when there's a lot of stuff going on, it's likely they'll at least get to touch on something they like in a one-on-one you can accidentally push someone into a ditch that they don't and they don't want to play like that. And have either of you had an experience with a player where they have sort of gone off in a way and like you you have to talk to them individually or sort of reconfigure your game in order to keep them in? Um, so this was more character based than uh, player based, but we did ha- I did have in one of my games a period where a character died the group kind of had to go and do this like mystic kind of like body carrying thing in order to get back home, get the body back home intact over the like several months of travel it would take. Uh, And one of the players basically, or one of the characters went, "Uh, no, fuck that. I'm going to go and hunt down the guy who did this in the meantime. Um, And like, that was character based and pretty easy to deal with because it was just like, okay, hey, uh, Jay, what's what's your character doing in the meantime? Let's figure some things out. Let's figure out when to reintroduce her back into the story. And like, maybe you'll miss a couple of sessions and stuff like that. Uh, But I haven't had a character like a player that's kind of like being almost difficult in that way. I've almost never had that happen. Mm -hmm. And Sean, you have you had this experience? No, uh, my players in the, the I've really only run like one and a half campaigns at this point because one of them kind of just petered out but uh no the players have always been for me been good about sticking together um 
And I think it's because they realized that trying to go off and do their own thing would be a nightmare for me. So they were nice to me. And didn't. Well, that's yeah, very, but, that's good. Yeah. But you've, you've had a player who had to leave for a while and you had to incorporate that into the game, right? You know what? You're probably right. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but like that, Jesse, it sounds like if this would have were to happen in a one-on-one game, you would have some idea or at least have the ability to think like, oh, I need to just talk to this person yeah, and figure out like we can stop here and say like, you are going to leave this, this part, the story you're trying to get away. Um, and for some DMs, that's hard. Uh, I, that's why I also say like, you need to have the setup before session zero is really good. You also need something for while you're playing. Um, to be able to stop and people call them safety systems. And sometimes I think that that, that implies that they're only for when the bus is, bus is going to crash. Um, but I think that they're really helpful for just pausing the flow of something and pointing something out. If you know that there's going to be a problem, even if it's not big. Um, I personally use Brebo Sheldon's script change because since I'm recording a podcast, it makes it like I think the the player is usually thinking about things in terms of like rewind and forward, but you can find a whole bunch of tools out there that help you figure out how to stop something as it goes and have a conversation. Um, and a lot of pl- the the other caveat I have with this though is that like you need to do it, and that's why I also suggest doing it for lesser things um, because that helps normalize it. I've been in a lot of groups where the X card exists, but no one uses it because there's like pressure to do it. You're kind of pulling the cord on the bus on the train and like you don't want to stop it. Um, But I find that using it often helps solve this problem. And then do either of you use uh, stars and wishes or any like after game sort of things? No, I've not actually heard that term before looking through your notes earlier. Um. It's really a fancy designerly way of saying, like, did you like anything? Because um, I think a lot of people will think, oh, I should say, what did you like? What do you not like? And sometimes that helps, but sometimes that sets up the player to talk about how they sucked in the game and how they didn't like what they did. And that can be like defeating the purpose of you're trying to play a game with someone and engage them. So Stars and Wishes is just a fancy way of saying, name something that you liked, either about what you did or, or someone else. And what is something you like next time? And this can help you get on the same page at the end of the session as well, because a lot of times you can sort of disconnect with each other. And Zach, again, from uh, Heart Points podcast, he told me about a moment where his partner um, brought up the idea of a thing called the president's daughter. Do you know what that is? Is it a book, a movie? I have no, no idea. idea. Um, but it's a piece of fiction. And Zach thought it was that, oh, you want me to do the plot from President's Daughter. So he made this plot conceit based around it. And his wife, Diana, was just thinking about the comedy and like the tone. Um, And so they just went completely in different directions and had to eventually come back. Um, And making sure that you're on that same page is is definitely like it can be hard, especially if you don't do it often. Uh, But it is there are ways to deal with it. So I think we've gone through quite a quite a few of the weaknesses and stuff, uh, but and we've talked about this a bit already. But how do you run a duet game? So thank you for asking. Um, I 
typically say to someone if they've never run a duet game, I say start as simple as possible. Like, like please, 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 please start as simple as possible. Um, especially with something like D&D, people think of the word epic. And what epic means is like giant books that they build. And eventually you might find out, I love making those big books. That's part of the fun. But it can really blow you up if you if you don't like that or if you don't know. So I say to start, stick them in a single place. So they wake up on a boat. They're in a dungeon, whatever. Um, then uh, give them one person they can talk to, even if they have a sidekick. We'll talk about that later. Um, one thing they can fight or use their mechanics on. So if they're playing a game where they do like rap battles, one person they can rap battle against. Um, and what obstacle they can't talk to. Because players have a way, depending on the system, of trying to avoid things. And if you give them an obstacle like a trap or, you know, a rushing waterfall or, you know, a boulder, they can't be like, uh, what do you like, boulder? Do you want to do you want to talk rather than hit me? Um, that that can help with this problem. And Jesse, you said you don't you're not a prep person. You definitely need to invest in generators. Um <laughs> And what I mean by that is, uh, I believe you talked about this before, Wadaboo has really good generators that they have on their itch page. Um, like one page dungeon generator is really good. Uh, and that allows you to just randomize a dungeon out of nowhere. Um, that can take care of your map needs. And then for everything else, either build your own random tables, like Sean just said that that he does, or find some Maze Rats by Ben from Quest uh, from Questing Beast has a lot of really great random tables, not only names, but like what's in the room or they even, uh, that game even has like a random spell generator um, where you roll a bunch of D6s and you're like, uh, snow crown. That's the spell I just cast. And then you have to like come up with what that means. It's interesting because it's actually something, this is also something we talked about on our, on our stream last week was the idea of uh, wizards putting out a book that is just, like the same size as like the uh, say the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravanica, but it is just tables. It is tables for uh, for names, for places, for books, for uh, courses at a university, for weapons, for whatever you might need. Because there are, because I think the one thing is that there are tons and tons of resources for that kind of stuff, but. To find the good ones, you have to put in a lot of time and effort to find them. Oh, yeah. And that, I mean, one of my favorite books from Wizards is Xanathar's because it has more of that in it. Um, it has the name tables that I really like. Um, and even if, Wizards, you don't have to do a lot of work. I'm, I'm begging you. Just make a page that points to the ones that you like. Um, uh, you know, if you don't want to make it yourself, just be like, oh, I like how this person did custom spells. Here we go. Because like making a custom spell is one of the main reasons why I don't use a D and D on my show, because the tone I'm going for is a little more Harry Potter. And it's really hard to generate a spell and know that it's balanced And the game. 5e is very much a balanced game or they're trying to make it balanced. And it's hard to do that when you want to be like really whimsical. Um, and I mean, you can go into like 2E stuff and throw that into your game and that's fun. Um, but not all players like it when you introduce like the machine of Lum the mad out of nowhere. Um, and they will run away from it rather than engage with it. Uh, 
but that sort of thing, like if they had that book, that would be so good. And until then, get yourself some generators and use those when you get stuck and make sure you tell your player, like, I'm going to be using some generators. I don't know what's going to happen. Let's see. Um, and that can make the table really fun and like random and chaotic. Um, Sean, you, for someone who makes something like likes to craft things, it sounds like that's what you like. Um, I would suggest try to shoot in your head for like a two hour game, maybe three with breaks, uh, because it's good. You're going to be on the whole time. And that I think can help all the tips that y'all had got from Ma'a and what you said in your time saver episode, I believe it was episode 63, right? Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I think that that can help. Um, I know railroad is kind of like a bad term to use a lot of times, but think more railroad when you, if you're going to just do one, because your player, I think in a, in a single game um, in just a duet, uh, duet game, if you railroad them, it helps give them structure um, to go through if they have no experience doing this kind of stuff. Like, my favorite trick, I mean, of course, with all this, you could just ask and be like, hey, what do you want to do? But my favorite trick is, why is your character blank? Such as, why is your character going to the spooky house and not running away? Um, because that gets them to tell you why they're not ruining your game. <laughs> and like... That has been the biggest problem I've had in all my Crownscript sessions is like, okay, why don't they just run away from the thing that's the bad thing? Uh, and so I've had to set that up. Do you, I mean, Sean, you talked about how your players don't do this on purpose. Do they contextualize it with their characters? I think it's the, the like, I've run a couple of like modules, uh, not like, not so much models as like beginner box. Uh, like when I ran the fifth edition beginner's box or, the Star Wars Edge of the Empire beginner's box, I prefaced it with like, hey, we're playing this because I'm new to the system and want to get an idea of how it all works. So this pamphlet, basically, of what this campaign should entail is what I'm going to be going by. And if you decide that you want to leave the game world and go off on an adventure somewhere else, that's nice not going to happen at this table and i think because i kind of laid that out and then the next campaign i ran was basically with the same set of people um i think they kind of took that mindset and brought it with them a little bit so that when they were playing in the D campaign they decided like there are sean is laying out very obvious story clues so we're going to follow those and play my character in a way that they would follow these story clues. And I think also because the group uh, is five people and four of them were already friends. And then the other person very quickly became good friends with the rest of them. Um, everybody got invested in everybody else's characters when like when a character who had lost her mentor and thought he was dead, got a note saying that he might be alive. Like several other players were like, Oh my God, that's awesome. We should check this out. And she's like, she was the one saying like, no, we've got something to sort out here in this town right now. Let's let's finish this before we go off and do that. So I think a lot of it was the players were playing in a way that they didn't really want to just go off and do their own thing or ignore the story that I was trying to lay out in front of them. Yeah. And I think that that can be um, if you have that sort of rapport where you can just talk to them, that that that's good. But 
phrasing it in such a way, like no, letting the players know where the story is. Like we are playing, I want to tell a story about um, someone being chased by a murderous ghost. Uh, and then the player, it helps the player know like, oh, this is not a game about cooking. Um, and then you can, you can focus on that and that can be very helpful. Um, and I think what you touched on, Sean, was um, getting invested in another person's story. I think that another tip I want to give right now is um, give them a buddy. And this is this is up to the kind of up to the player. You need to talk to them about this of do they want a sidekick and sidekick both if they're playing D&D, there is literally a thing called a sidekick. But um, as a character concept, do they want someone next to them? that they can hang out with the whole time while they're playing. Some players don't want this. There's a podcast called One-on-One D&D um, that, that is just a single person going through D&D. Um, but a lot of times, I think it can be really helpful for the player to have someone to bounce off of uh, and sort of get invested in someone else for a little bit. And if they do want this sort of buddy, if they want this sort of sidekick, you need to nail down what that role is with the player. So are they there to balance out the fight stuff? Are they a healer in the, in the in your care player is a fighter? Um, or are they kind of just there to play off of such as a squire for a night in my, in crown's grave, the first story I did was with a player, Molly Muldoon and Molly likes cerebral sort of things, mysteries. Um, that's what she writes. And so I gave her character a sidekick that uh, named Ru Rama, who was beefy, um, specifically built to solve like the fighty problems because Molly could focus on the thinky ones. And I made that person be purposely bad at puzzles and know it and own it. And I think that made them also a little bit more fun to hang out with. Um, and on that subject, like if you make a sidekick. I think that there's there is a term called DMPC that people will throw around and usually derisively um, because what they're worried is that the DM makes the whole world makes some characters and that you're just sort of like a prop in their game of like moving things around. And I think if that's what your player wants, that's fine. If you're worried about this specific problem, I typically make this NPC sidekick just worse at the thing that your game is about than what the player is doing. Like if you have some puzzles in your game and you like puzzles, Jesse, do you put puzzles in your game? Sometimes not super often. Like what is the main kind of obstacle that you'll typically put in a game with players? So the way I tend to approach it is you need to often it's, you need to get from here to there. Like you need to climb this spire of rotating clockwork machinery. And then the question is, how how do you use the abilities you already have to do that yeah like then that's i can already think of it where if you're climbing this tower of clockwork machinery and it's like moving as you go up um the sidekick could be someone who uh is practical and um is prepared but is not very creative and therefore they could go like whoa this is real weird and that's their reaction for the whole thing. Um, and having them be specifically bad at it, I think, gives more room for the player to shine and to do the fun stuff. Um, and there's also a side problem I want to say here where your player 
especially if they're new, will try to sort of figure out if they can get a hint out of you. Um, uh, where they think that you, like they're the hint button, they're like side character you give them is the hint button. And if you make them purposely dumb, um, uh, I usually use comedy for this problem, but you can use whatever you want. I think that really nips that in the butt of like nips that in the bud of like confirming that that character is not just you with a hat on hanging out, being like, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Um, that, I think that's the one the one piece of advice that I've seen a bunch of places. If you are going to have a DMPC, is that you you basically said it's like a they they should be a sidekick. They're never a main character, and b they're not a an in universe answer fountain. They are like if if the character turns to them and says like, "Hey, Duncan, how do you think we should scale this clockwork tower?" They'll go, "I don't know, rope." Yeah, like, exactly. So, something either something that's like super basic that the players will have probably already thought of or something that like you know in the case of a clockwork tower like maybe rope would very obviously get chewed up by the mechanism of the tower and so it is a very stupid uh, suggestion yeah like whatever it is that you give to them through that character should be like maybe like if you're really good at this something that'll get their brain gears going in the right direction but for the most part it should be like no, that was a stupid suggestion. Okay, we're not asking Duncan again. <laughs> yeah, in in that that example with Duncan is perfect because you could I can see a, a you as the GM as the DM playing that out, and you can see Duncan, the practical minded, very straightforward, logical person, be like, "Well, let's use rope." Throws a rope up, and it just instantly gets eaten up. And Duncan turns to you and says, "I'm out of ideas," and. That or sets Duncan up. is real dense and keeps trying. Yeah, yeah, it just keeps going, and he's just chewing through all of your ropes, and you have to stop him. Um, and I think not only is that funny, um, but it also sets up a situation where the player, if they get to the top of that thing, they can turn to Duncan and be like, "This is how you should have done it." Like Duncan, listen to me. <laughs> and you set up a dynamic where the player is is the smart one. Um, it's, it, you play off of each other in a fun way. And I think that like, that's what you're trying to do is set up those moments. And I, my advice, if you're just absolutely, you're like, I want them to have a buddy. I don't know what I will. I say, start with a crow or a familiar. And that's if you're magic, if you're non-magic, do a squire. Um, a crow or familiar, I think is perfect because you know that they're not capable, what they're not capable of because they're tiny. Um, so if you want them, you're like crow familiar, how do we get up this clockwork tower? They're going to be like, fly the top idiot. And they just fly up to the top. You're like, no. Um, and, but they can't bring you up. Like if they try to bring a rope up there, it's so heavy. The rope's heavy. So they get closer to the building and the rope slaps against it, gets chewed up instantly. Um, the crow's like, I don't know what you wanted from me. I'm a crow. Um, and that that helps cement like oh here is an opportunity for the player to do something to shine. Um, I I do want to say that there are some problems that will happen with this of like in the game itself. Um, and if it's okay, I want to go into those. Yeah, please. Um, have you? I know this must have happened in your games. I I haven't listened to every one of your episodes. I do not remember them perfectly, but. You must have had moments where your players gotten super stuck, right? Uh, I think because like when I was running the campaign that I was running, one of the things that I was very careful of is that whenever I put in something like 
a puzzle that needed to be solved before they move forward. I I lean towards the idea of there is a specific solution, but if they come up with a good enough solution on their own, that isn't what I was thinking. I would go with it. Like uh, I tried not to put like brain teaser, brain twister problems in front of them that would require them to think of a very specific solution that I saw in a movie or a video game or something, because uh, I was very cognizant of the fact that I was, I was, trying not to be like haha look at how smart i am as a dm i was trying to be hey your characters are awesome let's show that off so i guess i just didn't put my players in situations like that very often uh i've had points like that and my general go-to is like depending on what it is is be like hey you have this skill why don't you give me a role for that and and that absolutely works. And Sean, I'm so glad that you're you're because I've also had a game that I ran uh, outside of Crown's Grave with um, Molly Muldoon, um, MK Reed, and Rihanna, and three of my guests on the show. We were playing D anD D, and I set up this little mini adventure that had this big puzzle in it, and they solved it like right away. Um, and I thought it was going to take them the whole little dungeon to figure it out. Like I'd set up little clues all over the place and stuff and they just smoked it. Um, and I panicked the whole rest of the game because I didn't know what to do. Oh no. Um, but I think I've actually done what Jesse suggested though before as well, where, uh, I, I think actually what I would do is rather than, um, say like, Hey, you've got history. Why don't you roll history? I would kind of do a passive history thing. Just be like, hey, your character knows a bit about this. Uh, like, here's what your character knows to give them just like a hint to move them in the right direction. That If I ever felt like it was getting stuck, because I specifically never wanted to be sitting there for an hour while my players tried to figure something out because I know myself. And after 20 minutes of a players trying to figure out a puzzle, I would just be like, here's the solution. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and like that's that's something that I have experienced when um if a group of players go into a space, one of them has the ability, they do it, they fail, then all the rest of the party will start rubbing their stats across everything trying to like get coins out of the environment. <laughs> and I I've heard people talk about different solutions of like only if you have proficiency stuff like that. But when you're the only source of information, the player and you have an unreliable sidekick, um, you can get into situations where you just don't know what to do. And having a, something in place, like you doing the passive history, that's really smart. Um, having something, you can pull moves from other games like Gumshoe or City of Mists or Blades have moves where the player mechanically can ask the GM something and the GM has to be honest. Um, and that's, if you have the rapport with your player, you don't even have to do something like that. But mechanically, it can sometimes help for the player to know like, oh, the, the DM has to be honest with me. Um, even if they trust you as a person, they might think that you're trying to be cryptic, even if you're not trying to be. Um, and if you can pull something like that into the game, I tend to do that because that's information. Um, or if they get stuck, you can use momentum. You can just push the story where... Um, clocks from Blades does this and fronts from Powered by the Apocalypse games are concepts that allow you to be like, and then this happens. Um, or just if they get stuck on a door, have a dragon burst through it. <laughs> like you hate that door. You're done. You're bored. Like dragon. Um, and 
that can help solve this problem where like a lot of players, I think especially in a resource heavy game like D&D, they can get that 99 elixir problem of like they don't want to use anything. And so they will try to push their sidekick into the grinder to see what what can happen um, and will sort of stay far away um, in order to not risk anything. Um, I think there's also the forgotten elixir problem of I forgot I had this piece of equipment. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And like that, I mean, that kind of goes into a problem of like, how much do you put on the player? In my games, I started with Dungeon World and I'm going to be moving on from that system because there's just so much stuff in there that the player is never going to use. And it becomes too much mental load for the player because all they want to do is just hit with stick. And then they look around their, their sheet and there's like 20 spells and you know, like, here's what to do if you have a dog and like, you don't have a dog. Um, and really narrowing that down for the player can help or giving them the option either informally ask me what you want to do. I'm the GM. We're playing this together or in mechanically such like an investigation role or something like that. Um, and if you, the GM, get stuck, like Jesse, you talked about like freezing and not really knowing what to do. Um, I like to throw it back to the player. So if you get stuck because they're like, what is this character's name? And you know, oh God, if I name them too interesting, my players are going to spend the whole game talking to them. Um, uh, uh, Joe, Joe, Joe Jafaro. And they're like, oh, Joe Jafaro. I love that name. You're like, <laughs> um, uh, in... I like to throw it back to them and be like, what is their name? They don't matter. Name them. Um, and then the player goes, oh, crap. Uh, <laughs> and Or you can ask if they get stuck, like, how does your character get out of this? Um, you know, I th- And you can say, I think there should be a consequence because there's a dragon that bursts through the door and they are trying to get up this clockwork tower. Um, they won't die in this scenario, but what's the cost of the situation for it to feel okay for me? Um, you can also start and go back again. You can just wind up time with a group. It's really hard, especially in fights to be like, uh, can we go back to before the Druid, um, drank the potion, but after the goblin tried to pants me. Um, (laughs) and in this way, if it's just you and them, you can go back, you know, it's way easier to rewind time a bit. Um, and there's no one else around. It's just you two. So you can be, just be like, I'm bored. Can we move to the part where the fight happens? <laughs> um, and if your player's like, I am too, you're like, yes, finally. <laughs> um, and, and having that sort of rapport with them and like opening that up, I think is, is super, super helpful. So something that I'm, I'm curious about is that you talked a bit about using Dungeon World. And so I'm curious for, for our listeners, like what are some problems specific to D&D when running duet games? Um, I think the two big ones are balance and speed. Um, speed is something that was sort of talked about in Ma'at's episode uh, of the Time Saver one, because you have a lot of things going on. D&D is really good at like breaking down chaotic situations like a fight um, and making it orderly, especially with a group of people. Um, with speed, you kind of have like a weird double-edged sword where it can go so fast. You can turn up the speed of D&D with one-on-one to a point where your player doesn't even know what to do. Um, if you are having the opposite problem where it's taking a little bit too long, uh, D&D Duet is a website and uh, they have some YouTube videos. It's perfect. They talk about these problems in specific detail. Um, they say like 
setting up your character with like go-to spells or actions is a really good idea um, for the player to say like, in a pinch, I will cast this. Um, and that can help speed up the decision process for your player. Uh, some people like doing flat damage. That weirds me out. Um, do either of you do flat damage? Have you ever tried doing flat damage? No. I, I, it depends on the situation. Like I go back and forth between like for something like a goblin, <clears throat> for something like a goblin that's using a sword, uh, like I'll tend to just use the flat damage, the average damage, um, for something that could be really impactful, like an enemy wizard casting fireball, I'll roll because uh, rolling really low is hilarious. Rolling really high can make it really tense. Yeah. But just going with flat damage just feels uh, too rigid for a situation like that. So it, for me, it really depends. Like most of the time, I'll go with flat damage just because uh, I've got so much else on my plate. Uh, but for the impactful moments, like if a character is close to death or it's a really powerful spell, then I'll roll damage. Yeah. And I have never used it. The only way I could think of using it is if you are dealing with a threat that I'm trying to, like if you set up a threat that is creepily coming towards you, like Michael Myers, um, where you know they're going to consistently hit you for seven damage every time they come near you. Um, you are setting up a tension there that might be interesting because the player can go, oh God, I only have 14 health. That's two hits. I got to get away. Um, but otherwise it feels really odd. Like it feels really board gamey to have like the fireball. I dropped a fireball. I'm the evil wizard on the top of the spinning clock tower uh, of the clockwork tower. And they just keep hitting you for 15 every time. Like the third time you're going to be like, dude, get better at this. Like I'm right here. Um, you can also like, so I think you can do that if that suits your group. Um, if you don't like that, there are other things to try. Um, I would consider doing like a coin flip or roll off just straight up initiative of like, here's the enemies, here's the players. Um, it can be fun for you and the player to be like, whoever rolls highest gets to go first. That could be fun. Um, or if the player doesn't care, just flip a coin. Uh, Something I'm, I'm curious about really quick is, is how do you set up combats? Cause I know that like Jesse has had issues with uh, having too many players and the, uh, the balance <laughs> system in D and D changing when you get more than a certain number of players. Uh, but like when you only have one player, like I had enough trouble trying to balance combat for having a barbarian that took practically no damage and a bunch of squishy magic users. How do you balance it when you have just one player? Like, how do you make it so that it's tough, but not like, oh, you're dead? Matt Koval talked about this a little bit. He had a video that he put up about duet D&D. He talked about keeping it be like keeping it one monster for the player. Um, but in that video, I think he mostly talked about it as you are just one person in the game. So one person fighting one, you know, um, gibbering mouther is terrifying. Um or, you know, even early game monsters such as like, you know, a a goblin or a bunch of um, or like one sort of like wizard would actually be really intense. You can also do minions, but this is action economy is, I think, the one thing I wish was more clear in 5e uh, because you kind of have to be a designer to know where the tipping point is between, oh, no, the players are screwed. and 
like, oh, they're just going to wipe the floor with this. And even, and, and that's the way I said that made it sound like I know. I don't. Um, <laughs> I usually just throw CR out and try to message the players as much as possible. Like, this is a scary thing. People are scared of them. People are scared of the dragon. Don't talk to the dragon. Um, and, and also out of game being like, I am not balancing this for you. This is, I'm just threw this thing in here. Please don't pretend I built this for you to win. Um, because I think CR is, I think CR is garbage. I'm sorry. I think it's, I think it works for them because they built the system, but for anyone outside of the system, they have no idea what's going on. It's yeah. CR is the reason why I use Kobold Fight Club because it's easier to have a tool that just lets me play around with various monsters and try to figure out like, oh, okay, so for this group, for this party of players, I can throw this at them. And according to this, it should be medium difficulty. But again, like you very quickly run into problems when you have, like in my case, a barbarian that takes half damage from everything except force damage, of which there's practically nothing that does force damage. <laughs> yep. And two very squishy players a fighter who is okay and a fighter who uh, didn't roll so well on constitution when they were leveling up. So something that is challenging to the barbarian is instant death for two players from this party if they get hit. And depending on what it is, like if it's a smart wizard, yeah, they're going to like, like I ran into a situation in one, uh, one fight where uh, I hit the barbarian with a, uh, I think it's called Odaluk's Resilient Sphere, where it's basically oh, you're no. trapped in a bubble if you fail. Uh, I think it's a dexterity save. And normally this bar- barbarian, like they have something that lets them roll really, they get always advantage on dexterity saves and they uh, natural failed. And so for this entire battle, <sighs> the, the barbarian was really meant to be there to help even out the damage. They were stuck in a sphere down a hill and... The other characters are like, oh, no. Well, and it's it's <laughs> so swingy in 5e because, like, I talked about this on another show, but, like, I one time put my, like, party of six, eight or ninth level characters against a single Banshee and almost wiped them. Yeah. And a Banshee is, like, CR4. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, in that game I mentioned with Molly and MK and Rhiannon, like... I the main villain in the center, the monster was um, one of the trolls from Mordenkainen's, and it was the one that had sort of that death zone. And I thought, like, I built them up, like it's this immortal creature that no one can handle. Um, and instantly, because they were level ten, um, uh, they just opened like when the casket opened with this troll in it, they telekinesis it and set it on fire. <laughs> and uh they didn't even mean to set it on fire one of the players was just like a fire wizard and was just like fire time like you know they they were a sorcerer um and just started setting them on fire and they didn't even know they didn't even care um and meanwhile like trying to set up that dungeon i had like tons of little small monsters just all wiped out in one go um uh one big monster nope dealt with um Meanwhile, like I've had campaigns I've run where I've been like, oh, this is going to be simple. And I like have to pull back and make the character way dumber just in order not to wipe the party because I can see it happening. I almost wiped the party with a single roper once because I didn't fully read the description before the fight and didn't realize how many 
how many tentacles that auto uh, grapple on hit it had. And so eventually like four out of five of the players in the party were grappled. And then the roper decided it was going to start going over the cliff. It was next to. Yeah. That's uh, my personal, um, my personal rule uh, is um, try to level your character up faster, like level their player up faster, get them to three because three is more balanced. I think overall, um, you can play one and two, especially if they're new, but have them be sort of like prologue things of like, what is what are some fights that define you? Play through that fight. The player knows they're not going to die. You let them know that. And then just let them get used to this system. And But three is when like conflict starts happening and they can die if, if you want that. And then I generally say Cobalt Fight Club is great. KFC rules. Um, I would go um, one level lower, one or two levels lower and make them smarter as a monster. Um, so they start doing more tactical stuff, um, rather than go higher and then make them stupider. Depends on your group. If it's a comedy game, that's fine. Um, but if you're trying for like a standard D and D sort of experience, it's, I think more fun for me as a DM, um, to have a bunch of goblins that figure out who the weakest person is in the party and try to fight them, even though they're outmatched versus um a dragon that suddenly gets very interested in their fingernails um <laughs> when that's not the point you know um because i jumped my players with like four characters underwater after they fought a hydra and one of them was a troll and one of them was an assassin and then i looked at the assassin sheet and went oh no um because they got surprised in the party they would have killed two of them like instantly um and so i think that definitely and um for action economy's sake if they have a sidekick definitely have a discussion with your player about like who controls the sidekick during combat um because they might like to do that just have more options but that's another thing maybe faster heals um so that potions are like a free action rather than bonus action or like limited use magical items that's something that um beth from DD duet talked about so, and not to belabor this point too quickly, because I think no. we're getting close to time. I know yeah. that in Strongholds and Followers, Matt Coble has kind of uh, altered, not Matt Coble, Matt Colville yep. um, has al- alternate kind of uh, sidekicks, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, so the sidekicks in the D&D Essentials pack, they are um, simplified to the point that I think they might be useful for new players if they're like overwhelmed by all the stuff in yeah. um, in a single player. Like in a building a character, retainers are much more simplified than that. So um, they have they don't have HP. They kind of have like stress, meaning like little boxes that you tick off. Um, their stats they usually have like one ability they can do during a fight or something, and that can be a lot more manageable for your player to look at. Rather, especially if they're playing a spellcaster. Oh god, they already have so much to do. Um, using uh cards spell cards might help too so that if a of a if a wizard needs to cast a spell or cast a spell have them put that card away so that their hand is reduced um rather than looking through a giant tome of spells and being like what do i do now and it's like five minutes before they figure out what to do things like that so um since we are running low on time before we get to the final question is there anything else real quick that you wanted to mention about duets as far as running them or playing them or planning them well um i wanted to ask do either of you are either of you interested in duets do you all have a particular question you want to ask any fears you have about doing it 
I I think I'm interested. It's just right now I've got not enough time and too many other things I want to run. I don't know when I'll get around to doing a duet. Yeah. Do you have any, do you know of any um, kind of like pre-built duets uh, for, I guess, built for D&D and like DM Guild or anything like that? Yeah, there's um, D&D Duet, the, the website and YouTube channel that I talked about before. They actually made an adventure called First Blush, where you are a noble that goes to, that is called to a, a festival. And they specifically built it for one-on-one. And it will go through combat and it will talk to you about all the sort of little problems that happen there. You can also go to their site and see them run combat and how they do it. Um, but perfect. I think that that's the perfect one. And on top of that, um, if you don't want to do that, you're overwhelmed. You don't even know you're super new to RPGs in general. I think get a choose your own adventure book, like fighting fantasy um uh call of cthulhu has something called alone against the flames and alone against the frost those are basically choose your own adventures you run those because um and use the rules that you want to because all of it is just do you go left or right you know like simple kind of choices with some checks in it and stuff but if it sucks you can say that was a terrible book but my world's going to be so much better (laughs) and that is so useful you know when you're when you're just super intimidated by all this stuff all right uh, so, uh, traditional final question: If uh, you had been time displaced and got to talk to yourself before you started running one-on-one games, what's a piece of advice you'd give yourself? Oh goodness, um, I know this question, but I wasn't prepared. Um, <laughs> I think I would. I think I would really stress using pieces of media or or something like that to sort of figure out what you're thinking. So that you can get on the same page with your player. Like all of my problems in, in one-on-one games have not been the rules. It's so easy to throw stuff out. Like D&D, you can just reduce it to the skill check system and just be done. You know, if depending on what you want. It's you and the player. That's all that matters. But the I, I'm making a comedy and you wanted it to be horror is a really hard divide um, that can end up causing weird problems in the game. Um, and that... I think was one that there was no way anyone could have told me was going to, was going to mess with me as much as it did. All right, cool. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a blast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Where can people find yourself and Crownsgrave on the internet? Well, um, you can find me if you turn around right now. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I got bored. (laughs) Uh, but you can listen to me GM uh, duet games uh, on the podcast, the curious accounts of Crownsgrave. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Crownsgrave, C-R-O-W-N-S-G-R-A-V-E. And there, either the profile link I have or the pinned tweet that I have, you can go to our link tree or our website. And there you can see all the places we are because podcasts are everywhere. And whatever platform you want it on, I've put it on there. If you don't see it, just tell me. I will make it happen. Um, my personal one is at the Kevin Wilson. I just retweet things that I think are wonderful or magical and with some opinions once in a while. <laughs> where right. can we, where can we find you? <laughs> I mean, on this podcast. <gasps> okay, good. <Whew. laughs> uh, well, and uh, more and more, and it's getting more and more fun on Thursdays at Cape Goblin party night. Sean hosts that. Oh man, I want to go. So like, I keep forgetting that it's Thursday nights. I think it's Friday. So I'm writing that down right now. Do you want me to remind you on Thursday? Yeah, please, 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 please. Yeah. I do. I love Jackbox games like a lot. 
and it's yeah it's been getting a lot of fun we we're we're starting to create our Jackbox brand, and it is weird. Yeah, I love seeing the screenshots of what y'all are doing. It's I'm always like, ah, that's amazing. That's what I love about Jackbox is getting a bunch of people together to like come together. It's kind of like D and D in that way, like like tabletop in that way, but it's it's different. I love kind it. Kind of, yeah. Uh, but anyways, we should get out of here. Yeah. So much for coming on. This has been a blast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to DMs of Vancouver. We acknowledge that the land we live, work, and play on is the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. In recognition of that fact, we ask that you please support Raven, a charity that helps support Indigenous people throughout Canada. You can find them at raventrust.com. We are a part of the Cave Goblin Network. To check out other shows on the network, please visit cavegoblins.com. You can support the show and the network by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cavegoblins. You can also support the show by leaving us a review on iTunes or talking about the show. You can find us on Twitter at DMs of Vancouver, at Jesse Boros, and at Sean P. Hagen. Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. See more of her work at haleyboros.com. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. Find his work at acompatech.com. I was told that once, Frost Cricket was a humble prefect of the Celestial City. But when Wanderlust whispered her name, she left to travel the Earth on foot. Her journeys inspired many stories, and those stories inspired other stories. Some idiot wrote them all down, and ever since, fools have been telling and retelling the tales of Frost Cricket. Hear them all on the Cave Goblin. I'm Piers Ray. Sitting with me is Eric Ivanovich. My name is Eric Ivanovich. We're the hosts of Podcast vs. Podcast right here on the Cave Goblin Network. This is the only podcast pitching show on the internet. Tune in, find out if we can ever find the perfect podcast, or more importantly, can we agree on it? This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.